Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Thank you, thank you. You can all settle down. That happens every time I turn up anywhere on time. <laughs> Welcome to Pantasocracy and our parlor of conversations, is how we think of it anyway. And I have some, well, real treats for you today. Some old friends of mine and some new ones. And a conversation today that I think promises to go to places, moist places, that we've never gone to before. <laughs> um, now, first up is a man that you may have seen on screen before, but if you have, then you've probably been watching gay pornography. It's the hunky podcaster philosopher, Connor Habib. Welcome, <laughs> <laughs> Connor. Connor is Syrian-American, in that his dad comes from Syria, but there's also even a little Irish on his mother's side, I believe. And while he is well known for his past in gay pornography, these days he's much more focused on his podcast, Against Everyone, with Connor Habib. And he's moved to Ireland to work on a PhD. So, okay, the meal of fortune, Connor. Right, right. Beside Connor here, we have an award-winning woman of words, often sweary words, in fact. It's the Galway author, or more precisely, the Gort author. Author Lisa McInerney. <laughs> Lisa is the woman behind uh, the glorious heresies and the blood miracles, the first two in her, well, dark trilogy, I would say, of utterly believable underworld of sex and drugs and crime in Cork, <laughs> which is a quite, quite, a, quite a stretch for you, Lisa. And then we have a man who I know only too well because we have traveled the world together as performing monkeys in a show that we call Riot. It's Kean Kinsella. <laughs> Kean is one half of the crazy, zany acrobatic duo Lords of Strut, which you may also know from Britain's Got Talent. And if you haven't seen Kean and his sidekick Cormac perform, well, it's kind of hard to describe, to be honest. They're sort of like spandex prancing blokes without boundaries and the occasional hint of blasphemy. Keen is a Carlo man who headed off to Amsterdam after college, and I think that is where he got most of his notions. But he's been a Lord of Strut for 10 years now, and splits his time these days between here and Berlin, where his much more fabulous girlfriend lives most of the time. So once again, please welcome Keen. Keen is the only man from Carlo I've ever fancied. <laughs> Next up, we have a woman of song, Dubliner, Leanne Hart. And Leanne has been performing since she turned 14 and even had her own indie label at the age of 16, which is the most lesbian thing I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, these days, after a couple of decades in rock and roll, and she's still only in her 30s, she's working full-time in digital media here in Dublin and enjoying married life. So you might say that Leanne is the post-marriage equality generation and that she got to marry her lovely girlfriend last year and her lovely girlfriend. Now, wife Elaine is here with us in the front row. Hi, Elaine. Congratulations, both of you. Welcome, Leanne and Elaine. <laughs> and finally, rounding up our quintet is fellow Dubliner Caroline West. And Caroline has just finished a PhD on sexuality at DCU, so I guess we can can we call you Dr. West now? Just Let's do that go. for the fun. <laughs> Dr. West. Almost worth doing the PhD just for that. And Caroline's research exploring attitudes to sex and sexuality in Ireland and her doctors looks at experiences of women porn performers in the US. So there's definitely a shared conversation there between Connor and Caroline. But Caroline can equally swap wedding plans with Leanne and Elaine because she's getting married to her fella in December. So congratulations, Caroline. Yes. 
Anyway, we're going to hear lots more from these talented and interesting folk. And with that in mind, we sort of tagged today's conversation as sex in the digital city. But um, because my name is in the title of the show, I get to say something first. When I was a small kid, our phone number was Ballinrobe198. And to make a phone call from Ballinrobe198, you had to grab a little handle on the side of a Baker-like box that was attached to the phone itself and crank it. The cranking somehow sent a pulse down the line where it alerted one of the girls working in the exchange at the bottom of High Street. Then you picked up the receiver and waited till Maureen or Mary or Helen picked up and asked you who you wanted to speak to. Can you put me through to Ballinrobe 74, please? Costello's, is it? Yeah, Costello's. I know Carmen is visiting her mother, so there's no point if it's Carmen you're looking for. It's not. Looking for Vincent. Right, so. But then we got an upgrade. An upgrade to a swanky new phone that didn't have a little big light box with a crank handle at all. And all you had to do was pick up the receiver and it automatically alerted Maureen or Mary or Helen down the bottom of High Street that Ballon Road 198 wanted to place a call. It didn't have any numbers or dials or buttons because Baron Road 198 didn't need them because we had Maureen or Mary or Helen. But our granny in Dublin, she had a long string of numbers in her phone number and a phone with a dial, a phone like they had in the movies. It was ivory-coloured, glamorous, you know, with a big round dial that clicked out the number as you flicked it around with your fingertip. I would always dramatically pick up her phone in the way that busy independent women with snappy one-liners in movies picked up their phones, and then I would impatiently dial a number, hoping to catch my best friend, Mary Tyler Moore, before she left the office in downtown Minneapolis to catch the subway home. <laughs> then one day in Ballonrobe, out of the blue, Maureen or Mary or Helen were all killed. Like that, wiped out. Wiped out by a cheap, ugly, plastic phone with cheap, wobbly buttons that you pressed with your finger, but which offered no satisfying resistance, not so much as a click. The age of digital telephony had arrived, and Ballon Robe Exchange, which had always been overlooked during earlier technological upgrades, found itself right at the top of the upgrade list, which is how Ballon Robe came to be one of the first towns in the whole country to go digital. And also why Ballon Robe 198 got a lot of extra numbers added to it, and why Analog, Maureen, or Mary or Helen were never seen or heard from again. <laughs> you know, the various simple bake-like and cheap plastic machines that sat on the table in my parents' hall or on the telephone stand at the bottom of my granny's stairs bear no obvious similarity or relationship in form or function to the sleek black-mirrored horcruxes that has centered itself in our modern lives, and yet we use the same name for both, a phone. Perhaps we continue to give this neat, tempered singularity of glass and electrons the dully prosaic name phone, because thinking of a new appropriate name for it would require contemplating the awesome power of this gleaming thing we handle so casually. Small enough to sit comfortably in the palm of your hand, yet it is as dense as a black hole, containing as it does all the world's knowledge. There isn't a question it can't answer, not a person it can't reach, a truth it can't fake. It sucks up every detail about you and spews it out in dark, humming, climate-controlled data centers beneath familiar corporate logos in unfamiliar parts of the world. And in return, it shows you all the joy and all the beauty and all the pain and all the horror of the world we live in, in vivid, hyper-real color and annoying, tinny sound. It shows us things we've always wanted and things we never knew we wanted and puts them all at our fingertips, just a click and a swipe away. 
It sucks and pulls our faces into its flickering, hypnotizing glow to the exclusion of all else. It has altered every aspect of our lives in ways mundane and profound, and done so so rapidly we've hardly even talked about it. Nothing has escaped its digital reach, even our intimate lives. We present idealized, face-tuned versions of ourselves to idealized, photoshopped versions of electronic strangers and swipe away their annoying, sweaty humanity, you know, reducing them to pixelated ephemera that merely evoke the idea of an actual human with breath and sweat and pores and heft. It has democratized sex and sexuality, taking it out from under the covers and putting it in the palm of our moist hands. It has communized pornography by putting the means of production into the hands of the masses, and then it has recapitalized it again by creating the Kardashians. <laughs> But I can't be mad at it. No matter how many Kardashians it breeds, I can't be mad at it. Well, how could I? Because that shiny, glowing, digital miracle of human ingenuity and recklessness also gave me the current Mr. Bliss. And he makes me feel more well more human, and he's even better than his pics. <laughs> I'm going to start with you, Lisa. It's interesting to me because you and Connor, you're all both on the same side here, and uh, you have something in common in that you really did start out by using the sort of, well, the democratization of the means of production that that digital gave to us. Now, you started out with a blog back in the days when everybody cool had a blog. Yeah, nobody cool has a blog anymore. <laughs> Yours was that called? Um, mine was called Arsend of Ireland. And the reason it was called Arsend of Ireland was because nearly everyone in Ireland thinks that their corner of Ireland is the Arsend of Ireland. So I had people from Dublin saying, oh yeah, I recognise a lot there. I'm like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> I had always wanted to be a writer, mm. but I was this young mum on a council estate and I was like going, this is never going to happen unless I have some sort of name for myself or I built up some sort of audience that I can bring mm. this to a publisher and say, look, I can do this. So I, in a blind panic, started blogging. But luckily, all the cool people were also blogging and I was able to disguise myself as one of them. <laughs> but, but that's actually interesting because you had really, well, yours was, it was very planned then. Yeah, kind of. I mean, it, I didn't really know what I was going to write about apart from I was going to write about my version of Ireland as in, do you remember 2006, 2007? <laughs> Vaguely. God, they were very glossy and sophisticated days in Ireland. The last days of the Celtic Tiger. They were. And we kind of all believed Eddie Hobbs and we were all kind of <laughs> buying second homes in Bulgaria and thinking we were great. And again, council estate here. And I was looking at it going, what in the name of God is going on at all? So I started kind of taking the piss out of Ireland a bit. And all the cool people liked the fact that I was taking the piss out of Ireland. So mm. it turned out that I had something to say and then I had a means with which to say it. You ended up writing about dark, seedy, violent, you know, <laughs> drug-riddled Ireland. From experience? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I write about misfits and I write about people very much on the periphery of society. And I get asked a lot, like, why do you do this? Like, you know, are you trying to give the voiceless a voice? And I'm like, that's my experience of Ireland. This is kind of my background. That sounds terrible. And I hope my mother never listens to this because she'd be like, <laughs> excuse me. But no, it's, it's just like, these are the stories I hear. And these are the stories that kind of I'm aware of. I don't know, did people just expect me to start writing about college professors instead? Because that mm. is what you're supposed to do as a literary writer or something. But, it, you know, I wouldn't know what to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I mean, one of the interesting things, though, is you didn't have editors or people looking over your shoulder. You were writing your own blog as you wish to. 
and it turned out to be that you wished to write in a very sweary way, and then people would describe that as masculine that later. Yeah, they did, and I still can't get my head around this, but I've, I've complained so much about it, I don't think anyone is ever going to call my writing masculine ever again. <laughs> I've been dining out on this for years, I'll be honest with you. It was probably the language, it was probably the fact that I swear a lot, but I don't know, have these people never met an Irish woman? We yeah. all swear quite a lot, and we should embrace it, it's very beautiful. But like, I think as well, the stuff that you write about, or I write about, which is like the, the, the sex and drugs and rock and roll and people are kind of going well but but women are supposed to write something reflective of themselves and domestic and about love stories and I'm going why why do we think this about women I mean have you read any crime novels they're usually written by women and they're pretty bloody out there (laughs) the unbelievable part is that there's apparently sex in court um, there is. <laughs> Sorry, no. Cork is the biggest county in Ireland and it is very well populated. Oh, yeah, I'll have you know. And they're very sexy people down in Cork. I'm now, Connor, you, you have this connection because you're very focused on, on your podcast these days. And there was a time when everybody had a blog and, and now we all have podcasts. Um, so what drew you to that? Yeah, well, hmm. I had a little bit of a similar experience with Lisa because I went to an MFA program in creative writing, actually, and I saw a lot of people that were writing not living interesting lives so that the writing that they were doing was uh, subsequently very uninteresting, right? <laughs> so I, after I finished grad school, I decided that I should probably throw a wrench in the gears of my future and totally destroy it by being a gay porn star. It's a move I recommend to everybody. Um, so <laughs> straight or gay. Um, but, uh, but part of that was uh, to sort of challenge myself to have a more interesting life and also to put the challenge in front of myself that was like, if people are ever going to take me seriously from now on, I'm going to have to be awesome. And Mm. I don't know that I've achieved that, but that led me through doing gay porn and talking about sort of intellectual things in the public sphere to meet a lot of interesting people who wanted to have conversations about sexuality, pornography, LGBT issues, all that kind of stuff with me. And that sort of spun out into, look, I know all these people. I love having conversations. That's where it all sort of came out of. And the podcast is now, you know, that conversation, that exchange that goes really deep has a lot of value for me. Yeah. Well, because your podcast, it does go really deep into ideas. I mean, you know, you're a proper hardcore intellectual. Boy. So, but, so, so, but I want to go back to one thing, just the, the impetus to put academia behind you and throw yourself into like a, well, an industry that to most people you know, would think that's the end of everything. Like that's a huge decision to make. Did you turn your back on academia and then come back to it? Or Yeah, well, so I remember in grad school mm. where I was studying creative writing and also organismic and evolutionary biology. Yeah. But I, yeah. I inspired gasps twice. You what? You, sorry, you what? Inspired gasps in the classroom. Oh, okay, yes. <laughs> yeah, you, you know I thought you said gasps. So once was when I brought up uh, the Quran in a workshop and talked about how the narrative style in a story reminded me of part of something that was in the Quran. And the other time was when I brought up something explicitly sexual. And I thought, isn't this interesting in this place where we're all supposed to be learning the most profound intellectual things, both sex and God are off the table. And I thought those are the two things I really care about. And I began to notice around me in this place, again, where it's supposed to be this sort of exalted intellectualism that people who were talking about sex weren't really talking about sex. Like, you know, this academic jargony thing. Like they were talking about like the sub all turn 18th century capital 
sexualist uh, female writer who wrote about syphilis. Like, it's just like the least sexual thing you could possibly think mm-hmm. of in the mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. And I realized that to speak about sex, you have to talk in pornography because that actually evokes the sexual feeling. So I began to pursue that path in my life. I mean, there are a lot of precursors to that, but when mm-hmm. you're talking about the connection between academia and pornography, it was like, this is something that makes the world go around. It's, uh, you know, we can talk about economics and politics all we want, but desire, what we want, what we are attracted to, what we like and we don't like, what we're turned on by, that's actually what's mm-hmm. running things. And I want to be in the heart of that. Now, Caroline, he speaks to your very soul, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. Because, you know, you're, you're a basically sex researcher. You're a Kinsey type. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, well, Connor, I don't think he was ever, you know, a nice boy, but what's a nice girl like you doing in an industry like this? Uh, having a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm doing. Um, but it's just a really interesting way to look at issues such as power or yeah. how we talk about sex in Ireland because I was growing up at the time of the Spice Girls and the Magdalene Laundries at the same time. <laughs> so I'm like, girl power, but if you do girl power, you get locked up in a laundry. So how do you find pleasure in, in the midst of all that and stuff? Mm. So, And I grew up in a house that was just silent on um, sex, definitely silent on porn. And it was silent in school, it was silent in the media, apart from all the scary stuff that we're meant to feel about with sex and porn. Well, it wasn't just your family, I don't think. I think you know, no, most No, very yeah. common thing. But then as a little teenager sneaking up to my bedroom at 11 o'clock at night, I'd be watching Eurotrash oh, and yeah. getting a whole different exploration, I suppose, of sex and how it's meant to be fun and silly and relaxing. And then you look back at Irish society and you're like, this is mm. the worst thing you could ever do. So mm. I suppose porn is a really great tool, no pun intended, for looking at how people talk about porn and sex and power and pleasure mm. and, you know, feminist theory and communication and gender and history and all these different things are just all there in this yeah. very smutty little industry. What did Mammy think of it? I mean, you hardly announced her to, I'm going off to college to, yeah, to do no. pornography. Uh, generally just silence. Like at the <laughs> moment, it's again, it's that continuation of silence. But I know for my partner at the moment, he's just terrified when our landlord comes in that he's going to think the porn in the house is his and it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> so. so you're studying pornography, but you're getting married in Las Vegas. Now, marriage, of course, is very traditional uh, thing, but then to do it in Las Vegas. Yeah, well, I went there for the porn awards um, to do my research, and I was like, this is kind of a cool place. The university has changed. Um, it's definitely, yeah. I got that you're funded as well, so I was very happy about that. So, yeah, I suppose, I think when you do a PhD in porn, you don't really settle for the traditional stuff, so yeah. an elopement in the desert in Vegas, and then hot dogs and strippers the next day. <laughs> Why not? Show it you're all in. You're on your favourite person. <laughs> now, Kian, mm-hmm. I never knew that you had been a nice Carla boy until Amsterdam ruined you. There might be a lot you don't know about me. Well, it turns, out, <laughs> turns out you're more interesting than I ever gave you credit for. No, I'm kidding. I you finished college and then went to... No, I hadn't even finished. I went on... This was back in the day when there wasn't necessarily jobs in Ireland, so people used to leave on their summer holidays and go and get jobs somewhere else. But I was just at the very end of that and lived in a campsite in Amsterdam and worked in a bar. I really liked it. And uh, went back to college and then went back the next summer and then went a Dutch girl. Mm-hmm. And so then I finished college and went and moved to Amsterdam. And in a way, you know, you're coming from Carlo. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't be world renowned for its attitude to free love and free sex or anything. And then you, you, then you go to Amsterdam, which at the time it was the... It was the Mecca, it was, but 
it wasn't as much sex that was on my agenda, though it became on my agenda. It was more <laughs> uh, drugs and party lifestyle yeah. that kind of drew me over there. And it found you. The, 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 <laughs> and, and it was like a sort of a mind-expanding sort of yeah, experience that changed your life? or Well, I had um, just lived in Carlo and been around lots of the very same kind of people. Mm. And it was kind of a laddie kind of culture. And went over there and I was surrounded by all sorts of people. Yeah. Lots of hippies living on the campsite and mm. scruffy people putting on raves under bridges. I came across like the Dutch attitude towards things, which is very progressive and talks about things. And police there when they ask you to do something, they ask you to do something instead of telling you to do something. And also they were like 30 years ahead of us. Mm. And... They discuss sex. So a Dutch person will come into work the next day and say, I had great sex last night. And an Irish person will say, don't tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but the reason that's interesting to me, Keen, is because you're a straight guy, you know, with, you always have beautiful girlfriends and they're always interesting and fabulous. But you're incredibly comfortable in a, in a queer space. Like the show we do together is pretty bloody queer. Yeah. And you just fit seamlessly in. Yeah. Well, even Lords of Stra, although it's two straight guys, we kind of... Um, queered things up a bit so mm. we were like hot pants and spandex and started out doing street shows and we could be up in Cavan doing a show on the street and dancing around in little hot pants and there's all sorts of people watching us and I never thought much about it but looking back on it we were being really risque for people and people really enjoyed it people like you being a bit bolder and Ireland was ready for it but yeah. still like 10 year old kids mm. around that kind of age would come up after the show and ask are you gay? And I would say that's not an appropriate question to ask someone. And uh, then I would change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's interesting because you, you somehow managed to sort of steer a very fine line because in other performers, I, I would sort of be, get my back up about that. Mm. You know, like that they're, they're using queerness as, as a joke, sort of, you know. But you've never done that. I've never got that from you guys. I, you know, you no, were just being your nutty We were just selves. being our nutty selves. Mm. And that was really it. It's like queering up car parks and parks in Ireland doing shows on the street. But, but why is that? Because... Because you grew up in repressed Carlo, yeah. surrounded by repressed people. You know, it's like when you were younger, if you wore that shirt to school, people would all be shouting, calling you gay. So yeah. why didn't that bother you? Well, it did when I was in Carlo. And even towards the end of me leaving Carlo, even like wearing, even just slightly different than everybody else yeah. was wearing, I would get a grilling from people. And it, it was like a fun grilling. People would slag each other and nobody knew that they were putting each other down. And I'm someone who works better from a supportive environment. Yeah. And when I went to Amsterdam, I found a supportive environment of people encouraging me to be myself. It's hard to judge you when you're on acid. <laughs> <laughs> but the more I found that I can be myself, the stronger that I can be in it. And actually the more that nobody minds. Mm. And even when I do go back to Carlo and see some of my old friends, I am still the freak in the village, but they are now more accepting of it. And actually mm. they take, not necessarily to my face, but they take a lot of pleasure in it. Well, I always say, you know, small towns will be proud of you as long as you get the town's name into the paper. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you do it because you're a serial killer or because you're a Nobel Prize winner. They're still <laughs> equally <laughs> proud. Uh, now, Leanne, you, in a way, too... Well, I would have thought that you would sort of represent this sort of less repressed uh, generation and post-marriage equality and all that. But your coming out story is surprisingly difficult in a way. 
Yeah, no, I'm, my, my family are definitely repressed. My mother, like, brought up with the fear of God instilled in her. And, you know, my parents are both from inner city Dublin, grew up very working class families. My mom has nine brothers and no sisters. And I'm the eldest in my family. And I think they'd always expected I would be straight and I would get married to a man and, ha- and have children. So when I came out when I was 20, it wasn't a great experience. It was pretty tough for quite a long time it took about six years for them to come to terms with it they're amazing now like it's you know again my dad stood up at our wedding and gave like the most beautiful speech had us all in bits I mean, but, what happened when you came out well so the first thing was I told my mom first I thought that I'd have a better experience I was kind of scared that my dad would kick me out like I don't know why I, I felt that I just kind of he was always like just a little bit like homophobic mm-hmm. when he would talk about gay people and stuff like that so I told my mom and the first thing she said to me was I still love you so that was great. Mm-hmm. That was a good start. And we had a lovely conversation about everything. And then I thought, this is great. Like, she's fine. And then the next morning, she came down and said, you know, that thing that you told me yesterday? Uh, and she was like, well, I don't think I am okay with it. And so then we went into this weird place where it was just felt very disconnected. Like she wasn't my mom for a while, you know, mm. and like, look, we're amazing now. And I'm sure she won't mind yeah. me telling the story, but like she was so religious. She thought that I was going to hell and the rest of the family were going to heaven. And she had this conversation with me. It was just that black and white. She's very her. confident that they were going to heaven. That, I know. <laughs> so sure that they were all going to heaven and I was going to hell. And then a couple of weeks later, she told my dad, because she'd obviously be keeping this secret, he was really worried that there was something wrong. He knew there was something up. Mm. She told him he cried. And I think they had to sort of grieve for the daughter. It was, you know, all very dramatic. But that's a little similar to my own story yeah. in a way. My mother took some time to sort of adjust her religious side to mm-hmm. whatever. But what I will say to the gays is, you know, give them a break. You know, how long did it take you to come to terms with yourself and your own this sexuality? This is what my mom said years, to me. Years, five years, ten years, I don't totally. know. And you expect your dad to be, you, you give him one second. Yeah, and look, this is it. Yeah. Like, I had this conversation with my mother years later and I asked her that question and that's exactly what she said to me. She was like, how long did it take you to come to terms with it? And I was like, oh yeah, ten years. You know, and like, I had expected her to just be fine overnight, even yeah. though I thought it was so obvious I was dropping so many hints. Like, yeah. I'd never had a boyfriend. I was reading Fingersmith. I was so gay. Mm. I was a singer-songwriter. Like, you know, yeah. it was like all the typical... You're practically the indigo girl. <laughs> like, I mean, it was just so obvious. But I think denial is a very powerful thing. Yeah. And I think my parents had set themselves up for maybe the... Or, so I have two sisters, the, the three girls, maybe they would come home pregnant one day. And my brother might come home gay. They never thought that their daughter would come home gay. Because it's interesting. Right? I think, and one of the things you said somewhere is that you feel it was harder for them because it was a gay yeah. girl than it would have been for a gay son. Because there were more gay men in media and stuff like, right? And, and, mm. and it was more thought about or spoken about or something. Like lesbianism, I, well, growing up anyway, like it's really, really difficult to find like good lesbian content. And it's yeah. gone a lot better. <laughs> but back then, there wasn't a lot. But, you know, I, I do remember, like, the first thing that I saw, and I think that, like, I, I say this is my root, this is what made me gay, was uh, Anna Farrell in Brookside. Yeah. I was in my dining room, colouring in my colouring book. I was, like, seven, eight years old. And I was watching The Kiss, staring at the screen, and my mother roared at me and was like, stop looking at that. And I knew instantly that I really liked this thing, but I, Your mother there knew was something it too. wrong with it. And so then I spent a long time in the closet. Dear worried parents, watching Lesbian Kiss on the TV did not actually make her gay. <laughs> Wanderly Wagon did. <laughs> um, you, sort of, you sort of brushed on it. Sometimes parents have a problem, not because they suddenly don't like you. Mm-hmm. It's because of the adjustment they have to make in the trajectory they've always imagined for your life. It's kind of like a grieving thing. But also I think like my mother suddenly thought that I was a sexualized person because I was gay. Like in her head, 
being gay and talking about sexuality meant that I was having lots of sex. She was talking about like me having orgies and stuff, and I was like, no, that's not. Like I still haven't had sex, mom. My God, your mother is a very exciting image of a lesbian. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, Because um, you want to sing a song for us? Oh, I am. And so what do you want us to do for us? So uh, I'm going to play a song called "Rest the Sleepers." It's the title track of the last recording I did. So, yeah.
Yeah, I, I might as well get this over with. I'm going to come at you about this now, why you're not performing. Because you, as someone who has been performing since you were 14 years old, who had your own label at 16, like this is a seasoned performer, writer, singer, the lot of it. And then you found happiness and you found the beautiful Elaine and you've nothing to write about anymore. So, and you've nothing you want to say to the world anymore because yeah. everything you want to say is just, I'm happy. And so, so you're, you're loving your life, you're loving your married life, you're loving your wife, and yeah. you've just lost the will to no. do anything. Yes, I did kind of stop writing. I, I didn't find that I was as inspired as I used to be because I was always inspired by sadness. But that and terrifies me because I've always well. worried that, oh my God, you're never going to do anything of any value unless you're miserably unhappy. Well, that's just me though. I mean, there's loads of people who are inspired by happiness. But like for me, music was always therapy. It was my way of dealing with a lot of things. So a lot of my music is about me being in the closet. Like when I was a teenager, that was all I was writing about. When I should have been studying for my leaving cert, I was like in supervised study writing songs about being lesbian. It's a very broad field. Yeah, yeah. And so um, and that and then and then when I started dating, you know, my twenties, I was like a serial monogamous. I had a lot to write about. So there was like a lot of relationships over the course of time. So I have like a few songs for each one. It's great. But then I met Elaine, and I'm really happy. And well, I'm Elaine, starting. I hope you're happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lisa, weigh in here. Now, you write about a lot of misery and you don't strike one as, as, as particularly miserable. But do you think you need to be a bit miserable to write good stuff? I'm ludicrously happy all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy that I have to write about misery to just balance it out. Because <laughs> otherwise it'd be completely insufferable. Because people talk about this a lot, like the idea that you have to be a little bit miserable or you have to be kind of attuned to depression or you have the black dog must come to the door in order for you to create. And I think for a long time, I kind of bought into that. I was like going, you know, oh, I got to be deeper. I got to be like more miserable. And I was talking to a friend once a few years ago who actually suffered from mental illness. And she kind of said, what the fuck are you talking about? Don't like this is so insulting, you know, so I haven't done that since. Well, I mean, I don't feel that I ever necessarily want to be sad, but I feel like anger and these kind of things are great motivating factors. Actually, you're right. I'm very, very happy, but I'm also extremely angry a lot of the time about <laughs> tiny, tiny things and about huge things. So I can be angry about the United States. I can be angry about Ireland. I can be angry about Brexit. I can be angry about that person in the shop with the <laughs> ugly shoes. But I don't think anger is the same as being sad. I think anger can be very positive as well. Well, it moves you forward. Tell us, you're two books into a three-book trilogy. Mm. The Glorious Heresies. The Glorious Heresies. For those who aren't very familiar. I call it like a sex, drugs, rock and roll trilogy. So The Glorious Heresies is largely about sex and Ireland's kind of attitudes towards it. And I wrote it in around 2013. So we didn't have marriage equality at the time. We didn't have the abortion uh, facilities at the time. We had nothing. And I was still quite kind of going what in the name of God is happening mm. with this country. So I kind of tried to write this caper in and around... Ireland's regressive attitudes to sex, which I now realise sounds ridiculous. <laughs> and then I'm writing the third one at the moment and I'm going to expand it out again and have, have a bunch of different characters again. So I'm hoping that it will provide some sort of guide to modern Ireland. <laughs> and in the sort of the grand tradition of the glamorous writer, they've been optioned. Oh, yeah, yeah, they have, yeah. <laughs> they by have been optioned or, uh, like... by a television production company and we are supposedly working on that this year and I'll be doing the scripts myself, so I'm very happy. 
And, and is, there a, is there a middle-aged drag queen in... in there <laughs> was <laughs> With a cork accent. <laughs> do you want to read something for us? I, I um, do, yeah. Um, I, I can read a little bit from The Glorious Heresies. And just to kind of bring it back down again, I'm going to read quite a, quite a grim bit. Um, this is an introduction to one of the characters who's Georgie. And Georgie is, at this point, she's a 21-year-old sex worker. She's actually in the illegal side of sex work. So she's a prostitute in Ireland and she works in a brothel. So that is still illegal mm -hmm. and has kind of not experiencing things in a very positive way at the moment. First, she told Robbie that she'd moved to the city after her leaving cert to party. The longer she slept on his mattress, the heavier the life felt until she was too exhausted by its heft to be comfortable under it. She told him when she was sure he wouldn't balk. She was 15 and she'd run away from home, but no one was looking for her because she told her parents she was just fine. Rang them every fortnight, actually, and evidently the guards weren't interested in tracking down a girl who was doing just fine. She was still here to party, she insisted. Robbie took it exactly as she'd predicted. He scratched the back of his neck and puffed his cheeks out. Whoa, he said, and reached no further than that. By then it was too late for him to demur, even if he'd had the guts for it. He'd already walked her into an agreement with the guy he rented the room from. The landlord fucked her, now and then, in part payment for another month of indoor binges and insubstantialities. After that it was their dealer, and then a night's worth of punters around the back of the college while Robbie patrolled and parleyed maybe once a week, maybe more than that. And Robbie, of course, though that was for free. Birthdays passed, coke passed, crises passed, he patched her up when she needed it. She put her body against his debts when he needed it. She got pregnant, but it didn't work out. Later, maybe. In the interim, they stopped going to parties. They set in, where he suffered death after death on his Xbox, and she sank into novels about dogged detectives and murderers who hid in plain sight. She went to work indoors at his insistence. Maybe he was just ridding himself of the responsibility of minding her, but he swore it was because the men who bought her in brothels would be less worrisome than the ones who trawl the streets. He was wrong. Up to that point, she defined her time with Robbie in lively terms. Fighting, fucking, breathing, being. After that point, she was mostly concerned with death. The men who prearranged their time ensured that she was aware every moment of how many moments she might have left. By and large, they were vicious, much more so than the last minute trawlers. Maybe it was that these punters had time to stew in their contempt. It was often bubbling over by the time they got to their ordained girl. When she wasn't working, she took solace in serial killers and watched Robbie bleed out on the TV a hundred times a day until at last the irony started to sting. Now, Connor, you upsticks from L.A., sunshiny, West Coast American boobs on top and the America of the digital imagination. And you moved here. That's quite the contrast, though. Especially for you, too, who's been you know, in, in the porn industry, who's been in American academia. What did you think when you first came here? <laughs> well, I had actually wanted to live here my whole life. So um, I came here when I was 15. And when I 
was here when I was 15. I fell in love with the place. I don't. Why though? I don't. <laughs> I mean, it's a common question amongst either. Irish people, though. They're like, "What the hell is wrong with you?" Yeah, it's hard to explain. There's just a feeling. I think that people mm. have uh, connections with different landscapes and different kinds of people and different ways of conversation, different literatures, different aesthetics that really just sort of weave their ways in and out of your being. And that's how it was for me. Yeah, because in I Ireland. think when you when I first met you, I sort of thought, "Oh God, he's in for a quite a rude awakening." <laughs> you know, I thought you had this romantic, you know, no. American notion and. But but you are a Joycean too. Yes. I mean, you know a lot about the culture. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have the kinds of romantic expectations that I think a lot of other people did about Ireland. I mean, I'd seen enough Martin McDonough plays at this point to know what you all were really like. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, no, no, I had murder swine. <laughs> Because you are one of the most sexually liberated people I know. You're unshockable. It's all good to you. It's all grist to the mill. But then you're coming to a country which, even post-referendums and all that, I mean, we're not exactly the most sexually, you know, effusive people in the world. Uh, gay, gay marriage is really at the heart of a lot of sexual liberation movements, um, or so people think. In America, where things had already tended towards a kind of conservatism, gay marriage ended up being a much more conservatizing Mm. force for gay culture there. Here, there's a much different feeling because people voted on it. People went door to door and talked to people in a way, and it's it's having a different effect. I also think in, in the U.S., a lot of radical gay culture, a lot of the stuff that was really super interesting, the slate got kind of wiped clean by uh, the AIDS epidemic. And you have people like uh, Fran Leibowitz, who has articulated it really well, where she says, you know, it's not just that the brilliant geniuses died, their audiences died too. And she says that gay marriage is post-traumatic stress disorder after AIDS. And that's just a really hard thing to face, that instead of doing what I would prefer, which is gay rights for everybody, we began to do something that's more like straight rights for gay people. Mm. And what could straight people have learned from listening to the margins instead of trying to absorb a certain kind of culture? So We've still got a lot to work out there, but it's interesting to me the way it's all playing out here. And as you said, repression can be hot sometimes. The closet is a productive place as well. It's not just that people lose everything of value because they're repressed. Mm. You can learn a lot. I'm not advocating for people to go back in the closet, and I certainly don't want that. But we can look at that time in our lives, make it transparent to us, and learn something from it. Well, because I always say to young gay people here now that just because you can get married doesn't mean you have to. Right. You know, (laughs) if you want to go and live in a commune and, you know, make sheep with lesbians, Go for it. You know, I always wanted that. We, we all had the same options. But it turns out that most gay people are just as boring and dull and, you know, right, as everybody right. else. And I used to laugh and sort of say yes. when I was like, you know, campaigning for marriage equality, it's funny, you know, that I've become so associated with it because I have no intention of getting married. I'm perfectly happy. And then I would jokingly say, well, maybe that will change one day if I fall madly in love with a hot Brazilian. Right, but I think... And I did. (laughs) Well, I think also, like, I mean, marriage as a tactic, in other words, marriage as a hustle to deal with certain problems that are pressed upon us by culture, I'm totally supportive of that. But I do think that there's a bigger question, which is like, what is the radical thing that we can do here now that marriage equality has happened here? And I think that one of the great things that the gay rights movement could do here is constantly looking to see who's the sort of radical other that's always being punished in the way that we are punished. Immigrants, for example, would be great if the LGBT movement in countries where marriage equality mm-hmm. is passed side with immigrants, particularly, I think, and I'm not just saying this because I'm Syrian, but Syrian immigrants, mm-hmm. siding with trans people who are often even excluded from the LGBT mm-hmm. movement, sex workers, indigenous people, trans Travelers in the case here. So I think that there's a lot of work to be done mm. as 
something that we learned from. Instead of just forgetting, be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we got here, now we can get married. That's so marginal when you think about it. We should be standing up for people that are in the situation that we faced. Like people from Carlo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need your support. <laughs> and, but Keen, you've always had a relaxed attitude, all these things. And of course, you, I, have, I have a friend that you used to date who's a sex worker. Now, a lot of straight guys would not have been comfortable with that. But Yeah, uh, Kate was a sex worker before I knew her. Then after we stopped going out, she went back to sex work again. Mm. So maybe it was like my repressed Carlinist that was like, no, well, you can't do that while we're going out. Oh, so you're less cool than I thought you were. But I did, <laughs> but I did have the thing because there was a documentary made about Kate and her sex work. Why Artie had followed her around. Yes, yes, that was yes. around the time that we were breaking up. And so I had to tell my family oh. that my girlfriend who spent Christmases with us is a prostitute which was like a very hard thing to do. I was like, oh, Kate, I can't believe you put me in this position. Oh, poor me. <laughs> and she was like, what about me? <laughs> yeah, because she was like really welcomed into my family and they really enjoyed her company. And, and how she, were your family about it? They were quiet. I just told them about it because it was going to be on RTE and all mm. the friends were going to see it. So they, they chose not to watch it and it was never spoken of again. Well, now, Caroline, yes. what you're doing is all about bringing this stuff out into the open. I mean, you're yeah. literally putting it under the microscope. But it's interesting, too, that in order to sort of put porn performers under the microscope, you had to go to Los Angeles because we don't really have a huge industry here. So tell us about that. Definitely why I did my PhD was noticing how we don't talk about sex work as well. Mm-hmm. Or the people that we do hear talking about it are generally someone who's never, ever, ever done it in their life and would never consider doing it. Or someone who's like turned into the porn spokesperson like yeah. Annie Sprinkle but you don't hear from the person on the ground with the average three months experience or My whatever God, Connor, she's like talking your language yeah. this is the stuff he goes on about all the time so yeah like looking at like why that silence is there and why we let other people talk about other people's experiences and why we say that's not true it's like me coming up to you and go no 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 I know more about being a drag queen than you do because I read some books on it <laughs> yeah because so I watched like RuPaul's Drag Race yeah no. right like I know all about snatching and stuff, but <laughs> the power dynamics is what fascinates me mm. of like th- why do we have such control over people's sex lives or if there's money involved or you know if there's four people involved instead of the good old Catholic missionary kind of thing yeah you know I'm like why do we care so much some people will spend their lives campaigning against the bad kind of sex that people do and they decide what the bad Mm. kind of sex is well obviously it's not peculiar to ireland but do you think we have a particular twisted history about it yeah, definitely. Well, you know, you know, we had the almost 100 years of Magdalene Laundries. Yeah. We've had the Catholic Church. We've had that repression ideal from colonialism as well. Mm. And again, being an island where there's a lot of unspoken sex, like there's a lot of incest, there is a lot of sexual assault in the family, mm. but they were never spoken about, but also ridiculously common in our history. So we have the history of sex as trauma and we don't have that history of sex as pleasure and all like the research around sex is all about STIs or when it goes wrong and it's not like so who has multiple orgasms you know it's like fun that research that would be kind of fun so mine isn't all about like the horrors of Mm. porn it's looking at like the whole different experience of porn what's interesting to me and especially in the context of the conversation we're supposed to be having here is how the digital world fell on top of us and up till then, we had been this country that was banning books, you know, every weekend. You know, the country girls was a, a horror. Things were in brown, brown paper envelopes and you confiscated at the ports and all that stuff. Like, we just loved banning things. And then the digital world plops down 
And you can't ban anything anymore. I mean, you can get anything you want, uh, and they can't stop you. And it's transformed the country in a way into a country that has everything sit right in front of our faces. And in a way, we've never, we haven't really, I think, had the conversation about that. And Lisa, you're, that's, this is your area. I mean, your books would have been banned. Yeah, they would have, yeah. And but 20, 20 years proud. ago, probably, well, 30 yeah, maybe. Yeah, but ago. I mean, wouldn't that have been cool? Yeah, it would have been dead. <laughs> but like, when we were in school, we were passing around a cassette of the life of Brian. So we knew every single word even though we'd never seen it. We only heard it. You know, nowadays, that's just, it's so preposterous. Yeah. But you just thought, feck it. I'm, I'm from Gort, and I'm going to write about the worst stuff. But I think that's kind of the example of the kind of freedom, the new freedom that you're mm. talking about. It never even occurred to me as I was writing this book, and I write about Magdalene Laundries, I write about repression of women in various generations and yeah. how it changes. I write about abortion, I write about sex work, I write about drug dealing, I write about class. It never kind of occurred to me like, oh, will this upset somebody? Because that was no longer a question that Irish writers had to think about, yeah. you know, and this it probably was something that happened, you know, that I take for granted that happened just like that, you know. And so, Carolyn, would you, I mean, your job is to research this stuff. And in some ways, you can argue yes or no, uh, whether, for example, it's good or bad or indifferent for a 14-year-old to be able to just go on the internet and see everything in one, you know, huge, moist data dump. Or unlike our, you know, my, someone of my generation, where you, you learned a tiny bit and then somebody else told you another bit, and you know, you just, it was sort of this long, drawn-out journey. Like, is there evidence about that stuff? The research around it is just terrible. You know, any bit of research, it's very much ideologically focused on the save the children kind of approach. You know, it's really small scale. There's one Croatian study, though, that looked at porn, or like teenagers looked at porn for two years and found that the more that they had real life sex experiences, the more they looked at porn and went, this isn't real or this isn't what I really want to do. I prefer mm. the real life stuff that's really equal and more about my pleasures and stuff. But the issue isn't necessarily young people watching porn. The issue is, are we giving them decent sex education so that when they do watch porn, not if, when, that they're prepared for it and they can kind of yeah. go, this is fake the same way, you know, Fast and Furious is fake and everything else. So we can have mm. calm conversations because like at the moment, like the UK are trying to ban porn and that's never going to work. But there are people here already calling for that to be brought into mm. Ireland. And we know like that's coming from a religious point of view yeah. as well. But again, it's just failing kids. It's just like mm. give them good decent sex education where mm. you teach them how to not how to masturbate but um, <laughs> like that these kind of things are okay that's a different kind of education now connor so yeah. so uh, in a way this is stuff that ireland didn't talk about and sort of hid away and here's a, a weird little transition for you here because what's not seen or not talked about is what you're interested in now mm. and i would argue that fairies brought you here <laughs> because your phd Tell them what you're interested <laughs> yeah. in. Okay, so yeah, I came to study how and when people have paranormal supernatural experiences in Ireland. And it could be ghosts, it could be fairies, it could be an angel. How about moving statues? What's moving statues? You don't know about the moving statues? Uh, no, I don't. Oh so my okay. God. <laughs> Connor, you have so much to learn. Okay, well. Uh, Balance Spittle and the moving statues that you don't know about, yeah. but you're going to. Um, excited, is, yeah. is, I was in the 80s. The whole country was obsessed, and, and they weren't stigmatized and shamed. Everyone just assumed they were probably saints. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know. Yeah, so where, where people accept it and where they don't, where people's limits are, that's really interesting to me. So if you go back a certain amount of time in Irish history, if someone saw fairies, there was an entire cultural structure set up to help people kind of understand what happened, or if they said they saw fairies, whether mm. you agree fairies are ex exist or not. But then... 
if someone would see them now, even though they're in the sort of same culture and they're in some ways reaching back to a traditional way of being that had a whole structure set around it, they're in some ways seen as exiles from their own culture. And that kind of thing is very interesting to me. A country that's transitioning from religion into a sort of tech, imperialistic, mm-hmm. scientistic kind of state, how all those tensions play out for people. Yeah. Now, Lisa, Lisa, you're from a part of the country that would have loved now a moving statue. Oh, yeah. We, we never had one in Gort. I don't believe we ever had. Jesus, I hope we haven't had it because I'd be ostracized. But we, we have had experiences with fairies. Hmm. My own stepdad once, who was a contractor, refused to move the fairy forts and stuff. Yeah. Leanne, you're going to sing another song for I us. I am. Yes. Uh, to take us away from this madness. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Wrote Away, and uh, it's also on my most recent EP, the last thing that I released a few yes, years ago. Yes, all those years ago when all you were, those years ago, when you were when sad, I was sad and unhappy. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. day then the sun blinded and every piece of evidence you tried hiding oh I can't be your warrior I'm too weak to fight you So maybe we'll just leave this place behind When you made your promises I thought they were binding Oh, I can't be your follower I don't believe in you So maybe it's just time to say
Yeah, not that I would wish unhappiness on you, anything, but maybe Elaine could be persuaded to dump her temporarily, just long enough to get an album out of her or something. That's all for this episode. And uh, sadly, for, for this season, that's the end of this uh, season. Uh, so you were our very last guest uh, this season. Thank you very much. Connor Habib, and welcome to Ireland, and thank you. Caroline West, thank you for studying sex in all its glorious and inglorious forms. Lisa McInerney, thanks for writing about it. Um, Cork, I mean. Uh, Kean <laughs> Kinsella, uh, my favourite acrobat, or at least one half of my favourite acrobats. And, and of course, the gorgeous and lesbian, Leanne Hart. Um, and you can find videos of all the performances from this and every other show uh, on pantasocracy.ie, which will also lead you to all the various podcasting platforms and you can catch up on every single episode we've ever done of this uh, radio show slash podcast. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>